Hey there, all you ghouls and goblins. Radio 85.9 proudly presents Horrorzoid with your hosts, Stevie Scares and Natalie Nightmare, talking all things horror from the 80s, 90s, and today. Today's episode is brought to you by Ghoulberry Crunch Cereal. Don't worry about the sugar, you'll be dead soon anyway. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Horrorzoid. I'm Stevie Scares. And I'm Natalie Nightmare. And we are going to be your hosts talking all things horror from the 80s, 90s, and today. Now, since it's our first episode, we wanted to take this time to kind of introduce ourselves, get you guys familiar with us, and what better way than to talk about our top five favorite horror movies? Not an easy task, mind you. Not at all. And we're also going to have some honorable mentions along the way. But again, yeah, we just thought this is going to be the best way for you to get to know us and our tastes and see if the show's for you. If it is, fantastic. If not, you know, no harm done. We, uh, we're, we're glad you tuned in for the first episode. Absolutely. All right. So uh, first off, just kind of want to tell a little bit about ourselves. Uh, obviously, Natalie and I, we are uh, an old, boring, married couple from uh, <laughs> middle of nowhere, Indiana. Um, been lifelong horror movie fans. And again, you'll learn more about that as we talk about our top five here today. But this is uh, this has been exciting. We've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time. Uh, it's all we do in our free time is watch horror movies. So, Absolutely, yeah. live, eat, breathe, and sleep it. Literally, what's your sleepy comfort movie? Let's put on The Exorcist. That's how we roll. Exactly. Anytime <laughs> we're just trying to fall asleep, what better way to drift to sleep at night than to have uh, Linda Blair uh, puking green slime at Max von Sydow. Power so. of Christ compels you to sleep. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're really excited about this and thank you for joining us. Thank you for being along yes. for the ride. And um, as you interact with us on uh, social media and TikTok and all those great things, which will be out there in addition to the podcast itself, you know, let us know what you want to see. Let us know what you want to hear. You know, that we're just starting out. So obviously there's going to be things that we're learning along the way and things that you're going to tell us along the way. So please feel free to share that feedback with us. Yes, we would love to hear it. All right, so let's get into it, though. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to cover our top five favorite horror movies. And uh, Natalie, I believe you said you wanted to go first, right? Oh, God, you got to put that on me. I can go first. I can go first. I mean, so are we we going number five here? Yeah, let's start with number five. Let's go with your fifth favorite horror movie of all time. All right, so... Obviously, we're not going to be just talking about our what we think are the greatest movies, but they are no, personal no, that's, to that's us. That's up for no? debate. That's going to be debated <laughs> until the end of time. The Absolutely. greatest, the best, we're not here to talk about that. We're talking no, about our not favorite. So don't come for us. We don't care don't about what you think about this. So my number five would have to be the movie Saw. Great choice. It is, I mean... Obviously, there's some acting that's pretty debatable in it, but at the at the same time, I love it now. Um, Lee Wanell, I'm looking at you. Um, but there's something about that movie that just opened the door for so many amazing movies after it. Not to mention Lee Wanell and James Wan. I mean, they've done fantastic things, obviously, since Saul, but there is something time and time again about going back and actually watching that movie 
when you get to the end and Dr. Gordon is losing his mind and decides to do what they wanted to do the whole movie and cut his foot off and you've got Liam L screaming in the background as Adam everything about that movie it's just it's the perfect amount of tension and grittiness and just an awesome story even if it went a little off the rails as the movies went on obviously but that first movie to me just holds up time and time again absolutely it's a fantastic choice i can't argue with that being in your number five uh, not to give too much away, but it's an honorable mention for me because oh, I think it. I think, yeah, I think it had. I think it had such a profound impact on me as a horror fan. It came along. I was a teenager. You know, we were teenagers when that movie came out. It was absolutely splendid. You mentioned it launched the careers of James Wan and Lee Wanell, but it also it. I mean, it revitalized Carrie L's career. Oh, absolutely. It uh, made Tobin Bell a horror icon. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many trashy blockbusters, <laughs> straight-to-DVD horror movies did Tobin Bell do after that? I mean, Jigsaw just became an icon. It launched sure. nine movies so far as of I the I mean, how many times did you and your friends, I want to play a game? I want to play a game. It was like the new what's-your-favorite-scary-movie. Like, everyone heard it, and then you got into the sequels with There Will Be Blood, and it was just, I mean, it was kind of a phenomenon for when it came out, and just, it went insane i mean how many movies do we have now at this point and i want more movies i don't I mean, we, ever we are want supposed to get a 10th movie you know right. we're supposed to get a saw x here before too long you know the screenwriters and people involved in the movie keep talking about it and uh, yeah i mean it's 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 still it's an ongoing franchise and for those of you who are younger and didn't live through the phenomenon that was saw i mean it was the biggest deal in horror Absolutely. it was it was the the foundation the the burgeoning of the internet was at the you know was happening at the same time that this movie came out so you had this you know this bloom of the the world wide web along with this cultural phenomenon of saw that started so many copies and facsimiles along the way i mean it really was it was a, it, when I, I keep using the word phenomenon but that really was what <laughs> no, it, it, it was. that's really what it was at the time it was it just took over the world it felt i mean like. you know even down to movie posters and uh, movie like DVD covers, nothing had more of an impact than just a severed foot on a DVD cover. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it was just such a big, big open to so many movies like it, you know, with the weird choppy footage that they did, the grittiness. Obviously, it goes into, you know, excessive torture, gore, horrible things going on more and more and more as each movie goes along. Whereas there's something again about that first movie with honestly as a whole movie, how little gore is actually in it and how much psychological terror that movie has that it's just, it's always probably going to be my number five. Oh yeah. It's, you mentioned that there's not a lot of gore to it. It's almost like it harkens back to, you know, literally 30 years before Saw was made, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. Absolutely. It was one of those movies where obviously Saw was very much inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a lot of ways. Right. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre, although it was banned in like 30 plus countries, it was only banned because of the name. There's no gore. Not not that there's no gore, but there's little gore. There's little violence. There's a a lot lot of implied violence. Right. It leaves it to the imagination. And that's what Saw does too. A lot of what you, a lot of what terrifies you the most 
is what you what you what you envision in your own imagination and and that's something that we're going to talk about a lot here on the podcast yes. this is only our first yes. episode <laughs> but that's something that that natalie and i both agree on really is what makes a good horror movie truly good to us is that it, i i call it the nine tenths rule is good horror goes nine tenths of the way but it leaves that tenth step that tenth portion to your imagination, like it shouldn't show you. Hor- good horror doesn't have to show you everything. I think that's a that's a brilliant way of saying it. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of people, uh, and hopefully we get to interact with some of these people. But a lot of amazing horror content creators on TikTok talk about this as well, where sometimes it is best to hold that bit until the end because it's all the more better. And that's exactly what Saul did because. Nothing was more terrifying than seeing the reverse bear trap on her head, but not actually seeing it go off on her head. Right. It's just implied what right. the reverse bear trap could potentially Absolutely. do to a human skull. Terrifying. And I mean, I know that, you know, in the sequel, they come back and they're like, oh, you guys wanted this in the beginning. We're going to show it to you, even if it's a little different. And it was like, oh, it was cool. But there was just it kind of took something away from it in a way by actually showing what happens with the Agreed. bear trap. Agreed, yeah. Saw did a lot of things right, and it makes sense that it'd be your number five. So, so we've talked about my number five a lot. God knows what we're going to do by the time we get to number one. So how about your fifth movie? My fifth favorite horror movie. And this was really the hardest one to decide. Like, I, I got my top four, no problem. My fifth one was where it really was hard for me to decide. So my fifth one, and I feel like this is a pretty solid choice, the original Candyman from 1992. Ah. Tony Todd. Well, with Candyman, it's not just a horror movie. There's so much more to it. It's a statement on race. It's a statement on, you know, just honestly, there's feminist tones to it, too, with Virginia Madsen's character, Helen Helen Lyle. And And a lot of classist kind of things going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. Not just to do with race, but just classism in general with the whole story of Cabrini Green. Which Absolutely. I do love that that gets explored a lot too in the 2021 remake, which we'll get to that late. That that'll be a future oh, episode. Oh, not of a course. remake! Come right. on, man. Right, right, right. <laughs> but 1992's Candyman for me represents so much more than just horror. And again, to me, like we were talking about with with what constitutes good horror to you and me, one thing that constitutes good horror to me is the fact that you can take something that is truly horrific like what happens to the people in neighborhoods like Cabrini Green and what happens to, unfortunately, a lot of people of color uh, still to this day. uh, You know, it's just, it's unfortunate, but it takes that and it shines a mirror to some of the most unfortunate parts of our society and most unfortunate aspects of what we still deal with to this day. And that was 30 years ago. Sure. So it held a mirror up to society that, and showed a reflection of what society didn't really want to see. And not to mention that in that time, I mean, let's not forget, you know, we had the Rodney King trials going on. You know, we had race. We literally had riots in Los Angeles. It was just it was pandemonium in 1992. It was such a, you know, it's just a traumatic year in general. But then you have something beautiful come out of it with Candyman, you know, and of course it was inspired by a short story by Clive Barker, The Forbidden. Um, You know, Bernard Rose directed it turned it into something a little bit more visual, romantic, uh, based on this brilliant short story by Clive Barker, uh, but able to turn it into something just that, that transcends the horror genre. And I think that's why it's it's number five for me, and why it's so high on my list is because it does transcend everything in horror. It is still terrifying. It is still scary. Seeing Tony Todd 
with the bees. Oh, you know, absolutely. we talk about it all the time, the garage scene. Yes. You know, and oh, just that singular. It's one of my favorite scenes in cinema. I mean, yeah. not only does the movie play on a lot of vulnerable moments, like what's more terrifying than being in your bathroom and seeing something in the mirror? Um, but, you know, you have a woman by herself in a parking garage and already terrifying (laughs) exactly and you've got you know this helen going from (laughs) going from across the lot and there's just that scene is iconic and i remember when i was younger seeing it and it it was you know i hate to say this but we grew up with um a lot of education withheld from us and i think Candyman kind of opened a lot of doors for me and learning a lot more um you know outside of conservative Indiana of which unfortunately we are in but there there's so much more like you said there's beautiful layers to that movie and just the horror that you get is to me honestly I would probably say it would be one of my honorable mentions unfortunately it's not but I can see why easily it's just it's a beautiful movie and as you mentioned the the 2021 Candyman just Whew, added to it. It only expanded yeah. upon an already great foundation. It was, yeah, it, it did a terrific job. And uh, last thing I want to say about Candyman is it has uh, one of my favorite lines that I go around yelling around the house all the time, and that's "Hard uh, you look of a Candyman." So that uh, if you ever hear, I will probably drop that in future episodes. So yes. if you don't know what that's from, go watch Candyman, and right. you'll understand all the references so yeah but uh uh, sorry i know i said that's one last thing i want to say the other thing i want to say is i love how tony todd went on record and saying he didn't play Candyman as a villain as a horror villain he played him very romantically he played he drew upon other experiences he had in acting uh his theater background things like that to create a more comprehensive uh not even a villain just a character you right. know, and that's that really is what made Candyman transcend. I think not just the message on race and feminism and and what it had to say about where the culture was in 1992, but it was his performance. He wasn't playing it like a villain. He was just playing it as a, a really tremendous actor and and performer, which is yeah. exactly what Tony Todd is. And I think he deserves so much credit for making that movie more than I think anybody anticipated it could have ever been. Sure. And I think, and I'm horribly spacing the name, and I'll, I'll probably try to mention it somewhere, but we watched, you know, the, the Behind the Monsters kind of thing on Shudder. Yeah. Um, and there is the episode about Candyman where he talks about a lot of that, and he talks about where he found the voice, and he talks about the bees and this role and just everyone he got to work with. And if you haven't watch that go get shutter i'm not sponsored unless you want to shutter but go we're willing watch to it. listen to <laughs> yes yes please um but go watch it i mean all those episodes we just ate them up like crazy seeing all of these amazing iconic horror roles and the people behind them actually kind of talk a little bit more about it current day and tony todd just talked about it so poetically that i again i i, I can't recommend it enough if you haven't yeah. seen Candyman, like with everything on this list though if you haven't seen it go watch it it's yes. uh, it's our one of our favorites for a reason so Absolutely. Uh, yeah that's my number five let's move on to natalie's number four what do you got uh, number four house of a thousand corpses love it 
I can't say enough amazing things about this movie. I know a lot of people have either a love it or a hate it. It's very polarizing uh, for sure. Some people, I think, see it and they're just so perplexed by it that they don't ever watch it again. <laughs> um, but I remember being, yet again, a teenager and uh, going down to the Cinemark Dollar Theater on a weekend with my friends to go see this. And uh, I was horrified the first time, honestly. Um, it's very bizarre and, you know, the visuals are intense, uh, but there's something more about it, especially as I'm older and the more I've watched it and watched it and watched it, because I honestly don't think I probably watched it for maybe five, six years after I first saw it. Um, but now it's one of our constant movies. If it's on TV, we let it play. If we don't know what to watch, we put it on. There's something just the imagery of that movie, whether it's the lighting or the obvious love of Texas Chainsaw Massacre that gone <laughs> that's gone into that movie. Um, you know, just I can't I, I can't even find the words to say how much I love this movie from all of the lines. I mean, Otis and his dialogue. It's one of the most quotable horror fantastic. movies. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And House of a Thousand Corpses, like Rob Zombie is polarizing. You know, like we yes, said about the is. movie itself. People either love his work or they hate his work. There's right. very few people who are just kind of thumbs in the middle about Rob Zombie. Yeah. Uh, especially his early work. You know, Corpses, Rejects, The First Halloween. He he had his detract as many detractors as he did his fans, yeah. but one thing like you know I, I we kind of talked about it earlier with you know horror movies don't always have to go a hundred percent all the time balls sure. to the wall, and while Rob Zombie has this reputation for being kind of sleazy and grimy and dirty, yeah. for what it's worth, in there are a few scenes that tend to go a little farther and a little harder. Sure. You know, in Rejects and Halloween, I think he quickly learned his lesson and corrected course on a lot of those situations. But with House of a Thousand Corpses, it's the perfect example of he, it was, it was some of the, the things that the Firefly, fly, Firefly family <laughs> did in that movie, some of the most tragic things were just implied. They weren't shown. Absolutely, uh, yes. The majority of the film is, is like you said, it's dialogue, and right. it's brilliant. You know, We have the opening with the characters of Bill and Jerry and their girlfriends, uh, Mary and Denise, and, and it's again, it's a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of talking. We Absolutely. have a lot of talking Even from Even just Sid in Hay. the gas station, yeah. You've right. got just this plain conversation going on between one guy that lives in town and Captain Spaulding who runs this gas station and sells fried chicken and has a murder ride and weird oddities full. It is such a bizarre opening scene, but there's something just so amazing about it because it is just a simple conversation and there is a lot of dialogue, but there's just... Again, it's ninety. I feel like it's ninety percent dialogue. Yes, like if I were to sit there yes. and break it down, it's a majority of the film is told through just characters speaking to one another. So for for Rob Zombie to get this reputation of being somebody who's sleazy and dirty and grimy, it's it's funny to me because most of a House of a Thousand Corpses is just it's 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 a lot of conversation, but it's brilliant sure. conversation. Sure. It's well written. It's a story that's well told. While this dialogue is happening, you see things unfolding before you. Uh, even the characters, uh, you know, baby, 
you know, Sherry Moon oh, Zombie didn't yes. have a lot of acting experience. You know, I know everybody, no. and again, another polarizing figure, people <laughs> love her or hate her, but just call a spade a spade. And when that movie was originally shot, she didn't have a lot of acting experience, but even she has this dialogue and these, these lines that really show, you know, some, some promise there. Like she understands the horror genre. Well, again, yeah. for better or worse, she understands horror and how it works. At least the brand of horror that, she and her husband, you know, Rob Zombie, are trying to sell to everybody. Right. They understand their brand. They understand their mission. That phrase, you know, he or she understood the assignment. I mean, it <laughs> yeah. describes what Rob and Sherry do on all of their movies, let alone you factor in acting legends like Bill Mosley and Sid Haig, you know, rounding out the cast. Yeah. Along with, you know, Karen Black, horror legend there. Rain Wilson was early in his career. Chris Hardwick was early in his career. Yeah. You had, you know, people who were on people who are veterans of acting like Michael J. Pollard all the way to, you know, newbies, you know, like what we just discussed with some of the, the, the protagonists of the film. Right. So honestly, it's, but like every said, single person in the movie, whether they're really good at delivering their lines, like Bill Mosley is, or whether they're not really good delivering their lines, like, uh, some of the girls in the beginning. Right. Um, there's just some little charm about it, whether it's something that you're looking at in the background. There's, there's an earnest little quality details about Details about it. Everyone has something that's insanely, insanely easy to quote in everyday life. Whether you just want to say it because it's fun or you say it because it's relatable. There are just so many amazing things in that movie, visually, musically, all of it. The, the gore is weird. It's practical effects. All, I just I love that movie. Well, I mean, it's we phenomenal. could go on about this movie for days, but some of the other yeah, things this, I just this wanna, movie yeah. could have its own podcast. I mean, we, and episode, we probably honestly. will do our own episode on House yes. of the Thousand Corpses. That's how much we love it. But I mean, there's some Rob of the Zombie films in general. Oh, because absolutely. Guess what? We are both on the side of loving all of the Rob Zombie films. We love all films. of Rob Zombie's films, even Halloween. There's, there's not a dud so far. No. But you know, like other highlights, there's the scene with Bill Mosley and Walton Goggins. Where the the long pause where, you know, they're, you know, he shoots him in the... That scene is intense. One of the most tense scenes in any film ever made. There's the scene we love with the liquor store. Uh, We won't name uh, because we don't know what we can say. Yeah, we don't don't know what all we're going to say or not (laughs) say on here. We're going to play it safe right now, but there's the scene with the liquor store. Makes no sense. My favorite scene is the skunk ape scene. Right. You've got the scene with Tiny, who has Denise down in the basement. I mean, there's just, there's like, I could go on the for dinner days. table Grandpa scene alone. Hugo alone could oh, have his absolutely. own episode for Showtime. us. Like, we love literally everything about the movie. So I just kind of wanted to touch upon some of those highlights before we yeah. move on to my number four. Yes. So if there's anything else you want to add, feel no, free. No, no, I think that's great. Uh, knowing that you guys will have to listen to us talk about Rob Zombie for an hour in the future. Uh, more, yeah, you're going to have yeah. to listen to a lot more than that. We're going to probably <laughs> reference Rob Zombie. And maybe, maybe we'll get a few of you guys to go back and watch a movie again. And maybe kind of think of it at a different angle and yeah, love it. For just those like of us. you who didn't like House of a Thousand Corpses, give it another shot. Like like Natalie said, it took her yeah, just probably like four fun. or five years by the time she watched it for a second time. I know for me personally, I was the same way. I watched it and for the first time, I didn't watch it for years because it is. It's one of those movies. The first time you watch it, it's a little jarring. But it the is more jarring. you watch it, the more you get comfortable with it, you realize, oh wow, this is this has this weird charm to it, like Natalie said. It's it's just it, it really has this this quality that you can't describe this intangible 
quality that makes it somewhat lovable, which sounds weird for no, absolutely. A, kind of this trashy horror movie. And like you <laughs> said, you know, again, it, it also doesn't go too far. And we've seen a lot of movies that go a lot further. So right. yeah, it's, it's really those. not as scary as a lot of movies are. I think it's just really bizarre and fun. It is, it is bizarre and fun. That's the two best words to describe it. So uh, moving on to my number four, my fourth favorite horror movie of all time. And this movie probably had more influence on me as a horror fan than I will ever be able to comprehend. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street from oh. 1984, the original. Um, well, what... can I interrupt here and just go ahead and say that that's my number three so we can talk about this together? Let's, yeah, let's, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We'll, yeah, we'll be able to tag team yeah. this and we'll be able to spend some more time on it because I think it had a uh, huge influence on the two, on both of us. Yeah. Um, it was, but the, like, I mean, first thing, the, the two two things you need to talk about are the two most important people in the whole movie. Wes Craven, you know, RIP. RIP. T- terrific director, one of the most iconic directors of all time. And uh, just a master class on what horror truly could be. And then the second person, second most important person on the whole movie Robert England playing Freddy Krueger to perfection. And I mean, not just in that movie, but played Freddy in how many movies? Seven, eight movies. Right. Yeah. He ended up playing Freddy in like eight movies. He played him in all these commercials. He played him on MTV spots. Everywhere. Robert England is Freddy Krueger. You could not escape the pop culture phenomenon that was Freddy Krueger. I wish that I could have been older when that movie came out um, because obviously I was not even able to watch it but just going back and like you said seeing the the MTV spot alone like yeah. it's just it was all so bizarre but it was everywhere it was amazing uh, it, it, yeah it, there's not enough words to describe how impactful a nightmare on elm street really was to the horror genre i mean cuz when you think about it it came along it's like i think like we always think of Freddy and Nightmare on Elm Street and Wes Craven and all of that at the top of the upper echelon. It, like there's, there are very few people that don't like a Nightmare on Elm right. Street. He's, and, he's up there with the heavy hitters. Right. Yeah. But the funny thing was, when you think about it, when it came along in 1984, we were already almost 10 years into the slasher genre. When you sure. think about night, I mean, beyond that, when you think about the original slashers right. from, you know, like 1960 with, you know, Peeping Tom and another movie that I'll get to later. Um, but then you have 1974 with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. 1973 with The Exorcist. It evolved into 1978 with Halloween. Halloween, yeah. And then, of course, you had 1980 starts with Friday the 13th. I mean, and then we're, by the time Friday the 13th came along, we were just headfirst into the slasher right. genre. We, it, that was still four years. But that someone... was four years before exactly. Nightmare on Elm Street was even released. But the fact that someone decided, you know... Uh, people with machetes, cool. Chainsaws, cool. Kitchen knives, cool. Let's make a glove with knives on it and give it to a guy. That, I mean, who even thinks about that? I mean, Wes Craven. Wes Craven. (laughs) That's that's the answer right there. I mean, he's, he's a genius. And, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is, you know, we mentioned the heavy hitters, you know. But he's my favorite of those and always will be. And um, I was definitely far too young when I first saw it. Um, but it, you know, you, you talk about the impact that it had on your love of horror movies. And I'd like to talk about mine, but I want to I hear about yours first since it's your number four. 
um, for why it was so impactful for your love of horror as a child? I mean, I can tell you right now, it was the most impactful, one of the most impactful to me because uh, I grew up in a two-story house and I couldn't even go into the second story uh, by myself because I was afraid that Freddy was going to be around the corner. So like the minute I saw Freddy Krueger, the minute I knew what... He was your boogeyman. Oh, he was my boogeyman easily. It's like, I mean, he what what... How else can you describe a boogeyman other than somebody who can literally infiltrate your dreams? Absolutely. Stab you with a glove made of knives. Sure. Is he the one who had knives for fingers? (laughs) You know, like, how can you, how can you not just love and fear somebody like that? And then, you know, I think that's how we all start as horror movie fans is we are terrified as kids. We're scared by something. But then once we realize the art and the craft and the work and the 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 just the genius, the brilliance, the imagination, all of those things that go into creating these monsters that brought us such fear. I think once we realize that, we have this reverence for it, and it makes us appreciate these things more, and it makes us want to seek out, you know, more things like it. And we realize that's I think that's what helps constitute what's good horror and what's bad horror to us. Because Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street is another one of those perfect examples that. It doesn't really show too much. Right. You know, it's the perfect amount of gore, the perfect amount of blood, the perfect amount of snark, and the perfect <laughs> you amount You say perfect of le- amount of blood, and I immediately think of the scene with Johnny Depp, which was an obnoxious amount of blood. It was, but <laughs> at the same time, it, was, it, it fit, was, and it right. worked. It was almost comical, because it was like... Yeah, we know we have a lot of blood in our bodies, but does it shoot up to the ceiling and go everywhere? Absolutely not. No. But what, I mean, that was the most amazing scene. It was phenomenal. And I think, see, so you think of the Johnny Depp scene. I think of the scene with Amanda Weiss as Tina. One of the first, is it the first? Yeah, one of, but it's yeah, it's, she's it's, like, the, goes yeah, across she, the ceiling. The first death, I mean, Ab- is just, <laughs> it's it, it punctuates. I mean, it starts the, the film so perfectly, you know, with... With that death, like obviously the Johnny Depp death is probably the one people remember the most because right. of what's just unique and creative, and I love it. Yeah. But that death with Tina, for some reason, that one stands out to me more. I can't tell you why, but it just, it's there's something special about that. The way they did the blood with the blanket and everything. And of course, the last scene I'll talk about that really made an impact is uh, most people talk about the bathtub scene, but the scene with Nancy where he comes through the ceiling when oh, they're staying yeah. over at Tina's house. And before Just Tina, like a, you know, some, the, the right lighting and a piece of spandex, exactly. you know, and exactly. Robert England on the other side pushing through it right. was the coolest effect, the most terrifying thing. And how many times did you lay in bed as a kid looking up at your wall, hoping that oh, didn't yeah. happen? How many times you know? were, you like, were, were we like as kids, were we half asleep and all of a sudden we just like jerk up and we're like, oh my gosh. Because we thought Freddie was going to come to our ceiling because we saw him do it in a freaking Wes Craven movie. See, and it's it's funny. Um, I'll kind of segue into why it was so impactful right. for me with it being my number three. Is And it was really hard to not push this higher, honestly, with how young I was. So, um, you know, I'm an 85 baby. And I was probably eight or nine. And, you know, for a lot of people listening who are more used to... Uh, you know, streaming services and stuff. Now, back then, we just had the movie matinee and everything was edited for TV. So I didn't, you know, there was a lot of the cussing was dubbed over and boobs are taken out and things like that. So no bobs, no bobs, no, uh, no yabos. Um, but 
my dad let me watch this movie while my mom and my sister were gone. Um, and it was one of those moments that I just remember forever kind of being freaked out the first time I see Freddy Krueger with his arms out wide doing that weird run down the street and thinking he was kind of scary and my dad was just like you don't have to worry about it it's just a movie it's just makeup none of it's real and that's kind of stuck with me my entire life like yeah there's movies that scare me but a lot of the time being able to look at something watch something really scary and tell myself it's not real means I get to go to sleep at night and not really be too scared to go upstairs uh, for my boogeyman like you are. Um, and I remember I used to play Freddy Krueger in the bathtub. I would put my hand under the water and stick it up and act like Freddy Krueger, which was insan- insanity because I'm like this eight or nine year old. Um, but so that's part of the fun. There's, <laughs> there's something there's something fun and whimsical yeah. and almost childlike in hindsight. Like you don't right. recognize those things when you're a kid. Well, and but, I think you know, that's maybe, maybe the thing. Maybe you did you know, subconsciously. It's, you, know, it's, you you understood that there was something more to it. There were layers to it versus just oh, he's a homicidal maniac with a burn up face and a right. Christmas and like sweater. you know, I I think about that a lot. You know, there's certain movies not horror related that you and I. Uh, have gone back and watched or you know we're watching with someone else and I'm like man I don't remember that but I was a kid my mind wasn't at that stage to understand the jokes or the context of the conversation and you know watching Freddie and seeing some of that stuff I understand it more whereas to me as a kid I I probably just didn't understand I didn't understand you know you're talking about the first kill what they were doing and why they were in the room to begin with oh yeah yeah but um sexual content yeah I mean it's just Freddie has always been you know he's funny and obviously that got more and more into the the movies afterwards for better or worse for better or for worse and some of the sequels you know even with the bad movies you know we sit and we marathon them and we get to those movies that are less than and it kind of flies off the handle, but there's still something about watching them that's just fun. Well, that's why I think there's that, that it goes back to Robert England and just that, that charisma yeah, right. that he has as an actor and a performer. And then his, just like what the, the one dedication. liner is he going to give us this oh, time? Absolutely. Like everyone yeah, knows 100%. welcome to prime time, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, there's, there's so many more and they get cheesier and cheesier and you know, it, it just it's kind of come full circle to the point where you you know you talk about new nightmare being oh, I love new a nightmare. phenomenal movie which it is and uh, we're not even going to acknowledge the whatever remake nonsense that they tried to do um, but the 2010 film it, yes. yeah it, we, if we, it doesn't have robert in it it's not nightmare on elm street we, for we, me. yeah we'll, we'll we'll again we'll probably do a whole episode on the nightmare on elm street franchise <laughs> uh sans the 2010 remake sure. film but yeah again we could go on for days another 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 series character and film that we could go on forever uh, i just think that he stands up well against michael and jason so he's my top out of them all yeah, yes uh, i couldn't agree more uh, so moving on to my number three. Yeah. My number three is uh, the first horror movie to ever win at the Academy Awards. Ooh. It's Silence of the Lambs. So Silence of the Lambs is my number three. And it, it tr- truly, it's it's probably one of the most important horror movies of all time. And to anybody out there who doesn't think it's horror, because I've seen that argument out there. Um, I don't see it as much anymore, but I remember seeing that back in the day. A lot of people argued it wasn't really a horror movie, but 
what else do you call a movie that features a cannibalistic psychiatrist and a guy who's got a woman in a hole in his basement? Right. So, I mean, uh, that's, that's a horror movie. A serial killer and yep. a serial killer and tension and thrills. Right. And I think a lot of people just think horror movies are all about blood and monsters, but what is Hannibal but blood and monsters? I mean, he just is a monster. more of the realistic kind. Right. It's not a, you know, like we were just talking about Freddy, totally unrealistic. Um, Hannibal, not so much at all. I mean, we've literally had cannibal serial killers uh, in mean, our lifetimes. And Hannibal Lecter, really, Thomas Harris, the author of the Hannibal novels, based him on real-life serial killers like Ed Gein. Right. So, I mean, he, the, Hannibal Lecter's foundation is very much based in reality when yeah. you get down to it. Buffalo Bill as well. Uh, sorry, Buffalo Bill, I meant to say, is the one based on Ed Gein. But Hannibal Lecter also based on people that Thomas Harris actually really interviewed uh, in his time, uh, you know, before he was a famous author. So, uh, yeah, Hannibal Lecter, though, one of the most iconic villains. Uh, and, and, and this is great because he has less than 30 minutes of screen time. Anthony Hopkins has less than 30 minutes of screen time the whole movie, yet That just he goes to away. show how impactful that acting is. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, he walked away with the Oscar for Best Actor, set right. the record for the only person the, the person to win Best Actor with the least amount of screen time. Nobody's yeah. done that it was since, you know, before or after. Uh, then you factor in the amazing, life-changing, game-changing performance of Jodie Foster, the chemistry that she had with Anthony Hopkins, it's unparalleled. I don't think two actors have had more chemistry on screen than Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Factor in another, again, great performances by Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford. To me, I know there's been other great Jack Crawfords out there, Harvey Keitel, Lawrence Fishburne, but to me, Scott Glenn, he is, he's my Jack Crawford. I hate to say it, but that's who I think of when I think yeah. Jack Crawford. And then you, uh, you've got Ted Levine in just oh. the most terrific performance I've I've seen from uh, most actors out there. Like, like Ted Levine, there are very few people that can hold a candle to him and what he did as Buffalo Bill. It was just a mind-bending performance. When he says to Catherine down in the hole, when he says, you don't know what pain is. I still, to this day, oh. get goosebumps and chills. It yeah. is one of the most intense villains you will ever find in a horror movie. The way that whole scene builds, the multiple scenes with them, honestly, but the way that scene builds specifically and how he can just go from this calm, low voice to, like, screaming that is definitely... I. I second your notion of goosebumps every time uh we actually uh were able to see it in theaters a little while ago uh they were showing it for anniversary and we yeah. went and uh obviously you know it came out in a time we were again both pretty young and i think seeing that in theaters and hearing that um definitely was like the ultimate experience and I'm, I'm so happy that we had it because it's such an amazing movie from start to finish. Just when that score starts in yeah. the beginning to the end with that long scene of Hannibal walking away. Oh, well, Perfection. I love the way that scene is shot. I mean, and what, like again, well, you know, wrapping up my thoughts here, just something I love that not only was it the horror movie, the first horror movie to really 
win anything at the Oscars, but it won the big five. I mean, it, it didn't just win an Oscar. It won the big five. It won Best Actor Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress Jodie Foster, Best Picture, Best Director for Jonathan Demme, and Best Screenwriter for Ted Talley. Everything about that movie is simple perfection. I mean, you can't... I, I argue anybody to watch that movie and pick out any flaws. It is probably as close to a flawless film as we will get made in the last 30, 40 years. It is truly a, a spectacle. Yeah. And, and everybody in there put their heart and soul into it. And they took this little novel from Thomas Harris, the second novel in the series of Hannibal, by the way. Um, yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's only the second. It's the second novel. It's not even the first novel. A lot of people don't know the chronology there. But yeah, Silence Lambs is the second story in the tale of Hannibal Lecter. Which uh, I didn't even know, honestly, right. until probably a year or two ago. Right, yeah. It's it's the sequel to Red Dragon, but Red Dragon, the film, got made afterwards. Technically got made before Manhunter. It's muddy. We'll, we'll probably cover that, too, in the future. Well, and those are new for me, too. Right. right? <laughs> I'd only ever seen Silence of the Lambs, which is tragic, um, because the other movies have been phenomenal so far. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's why I didn't know. I'd never yeah. seen the other movies. I've never read the book, so... I can see how a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. And I just think it's, I mean, and it can be, a, it's a perfect standalone. Uh, well, uh, it's Silence of the Lambs stands yeah. on its own as just this Absolutely. peak of filmmaking that it's, it's hard to, it, it's, you know, you, you get so wrapped up in its legacy that you forget that it's part of a greater story yeah. of this Hannibal Lecter character that is, you know, it, it, honestly though, for any, you, you'll, you can, comment on this too because you've mm -hmm. seen the rest of the movies now yeah it's the tip of the iceberg with oh, anthony yeah. hopkins performances as hannibal lecter and he won the oscar for it he didn't win the oscar for his other performances as as hannibal lecter and but i can if kind you of see them, why yeah. in a way though like the, the it's movies not themselves that the, weren't right. as, as structurally sound as what jonathan demi yes. did with silence of the land it's not other, that his yeah. performance is right. anything less than um, honestly, I love how much more intense he actually can be in the other movie. But, you know, it's, it's like what you said. It's not as structurally sound. There's something missing in the other movies, just that something that just makes it absolutely 100% complete from beginning to end. Absolutely. All right, so moving on, uh, let's get to your number two. Okay. Um, another one that... I feel like a lot of people kind of pick because this is technically a remake um, would be it from 2017. Yeah. Um, that movie had a huge impact on <laughs> both you and I. Yeah. Uh, as I look around our apartment and see all of the Pennywise things that are around. Um, but I, I, I have to find my words here. I was terrified of clowns as a kid. And I remember was it every now cooler, and then. Coolerophobia, something like that. Yeah, Cooler, yeah. Coolerophobia. I don't know. <laughs> it yeah, sounds like you're mean. chewing bread and trying to mention a phobia. Coolerophobia. Uh, <laughs> but I was terrified of clowns. And I remember the miniseries because it was a miniseries with Tim Curry. It's long if you want to just sit down and watch it all in yeah, one it's like go. It's like three or four hours almost. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an intense watch. It's a trick. Yeah. But yeah, be prepared to yeah, block out your schedule. It's delightful and you get a lot of amazing amazing young stars in that movie. Um, but I remember seeing the image of Tim Curry with the balloons pointing and laughing out in the open. 
Uh, that scene alone scared the daylights out of me. And as I got older, I, I ended up, I love clowns. I love all that weird stuff. Obviously, I'm here. Um, and I remember seeing some of the teaser images of Skarsgård as Pennywise and was blown away. See, I don't think I saw any preview images of what he looked like until a trailer came it, out. I don't think it was till a trailer. It was that like I a silhouette almost kind of an yeah. image. Like you could kind of see the outfit, like very little detail. It was kind of like just that. Almost yeah. like what you see on one of the posters. And I just thought it was such a cool new look for him. Because don't get me wrong, like the Tim Curry clown style is awesome. But there was just something really cool about this new one. Well, I love the juxtaposition, too, because Tim Curry's is colorful. It has that bright yellow, you know, colorful oh, outfit yeah. with the polka dots and stuff Very like that. Very traditional, honestly, 90s, like 80s clown. clown. Right. Yeah, party clown. Meanwhile, Bill Skarsgård is muted colors, muted tones, a lot more demure as far as his, as his appearance goes. It's more of like... What's what is it? Is it is like a like a Perot? Perot. Right. Different style of kind of subtle colors. Right. Yeah. And you know, he's just got those big red puff balls down his chest. Of course. It's like other and than the his, crazy flame colored hair. Yeah, but other than the hair and the, the dots and the on red his, details. Right. On other his than outfit, those those there's little not a lot. Yeah, other yeah, other than that, there's a lot of it is just this muted gray. Right. Which I think is like I think helped set him apart. From Curry's, uh, just inspiring performances, Pennywise. Like that's the thing. Like there's this constant debate since 2017, where people ask who's better, Tim Curry or Bill Skarsgård. That is oh, yeah. probably Everyone the most impossible pick. question to answer. I can't pick. I will never pick. But it's <laughs> right, and it's almost impossible to answer because they both did such a splendid job. Sure. But focusing more on the 2017 it, I think one thing that that did it for me that one thing that I really loved about it. Were the were the were the, the 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 cast the child actors oh, that they picked for that movie? Every single person. Finn Wolfhard, Sophia Lillis, Jaden Martell. I mean, you have just a spectacular cast of these young actors, and you know, Andy Muschietti. Wyatt Olaf is. Phenomenal. Wyatt Olaf, terrific. Like yes. I mean, literally every kid, and like obviously, you know, they're kids. Like it's literally, hard to they find are actual children. Kids that are great. In this film, yeah. You know, like me and you. Uh, I think we were just talking about this, honestly, weirdly earlier today, about how you can have a really good child actor, or you have a really kind of bad child actor because they're a kid. Right. And then you have stuff like, you know, in The Shining with Danny, where a lot of the stuff that they were filming, he wasn't actually even seen. And it was just like, yeah. all right, look scared. And he looks scared. Yeah. And but you have these kids and, you know, um, Georgie obviously being younger than all of them and even his his performance. Like I saw that teaser of the sewer scene, the, the iconic sewer scene. Yeah, sewer they, scene. they released that before the movie came out, if yeah. I remember right, at yeah. least part of that it scene. It just kind of cut off a little bit, you yeah. know, they don't show the full thing. But just that scene alone of him kind of, oh, I don't know, and like just being like what a kid would be yeah. felt so genuine. And then you add in the score by Benjamin Walfish. Every single aspect in that movie is beautiful. And... I've seen so many terrific reviews of that movie, oh. and, and it really is. It's like it's. I don't it's know how one. someone could not like that. I movie. agree. It's like you know, and everybody points out their shortcomings with the sequel. I enjoy the sequel. I love the sequel. I, I is it as good as the first one? 
I would say no. No, the the first one is stands in a class of its own. It's another one where the like we were talking about with Silence of the Lambs, where it's like I defy anybody to watch that movie and pick out a single flaw with it. It's just so expertly done. And it came out in 2017. By the time 2017 came out, I was a 28 year old 28 year old adult with two kids, and I was terrified. <laughs> right. I was absolutely terrified of scenes with like the leper. And, well, uh, I went Judith to see it in the theater and, alone, yeah, <laughs> just sitting in the back row with a bucket of popcorn. And, you know, whenever you're in a big, dark theater like that, and you see all those little things in the background when it's dark, dark scenes, like the scene that terrified me, that made me come home and turn my lights on is whenever you have Stanley putting the book back oh. and the picture frame drops and then it pans and you see her in the background with the flute. Oh. That is, oh, I got goosebumps just thinking just about thinking it. Just thinking about it. nightmare that, fuel. That scene with Judith is hands down. Uh, oh, and then the one where she's coming at him in, when they're down in the sewer. And oh, she, yeah, like, with all of her it, teeth. It, I mean, it's Pennywise, but it, you know, he's sure. taking the form of, of Judith. And, right. and just those, like you said, those teeth, those gnarly teeth coming at it just, yeah, because, I mean, everything that they see is scary. Like, right. you talk about the leper. Like, yeah, the leper is terrifying. Right. But there's something about... And obviously, it's scary that he's, like, out in the open chasing yeah. Eddie down. But there's something about her and, like, the weird crookedness, you know, of her, the the art that she comes from. Which, if you ever look up the art that inspired her look alone is Nightmare Fuel. Right. Because um, it's actually based off there of that are a real artist. Yeah. Yes. Um, but you know she's she's terrifying even more than just Pennywise the clown. Yes, and, and Andy Muschietti, I think one thing that oh. he did terrifically with that movie, and probably the biggest strength of that movie is he took fears that most of us actually had as children, and legitimate fears of these kids, and and and, and let's not forget that this is the source material of Stephen King. Sure, you know Stephen King wrote this to, I don't want to say perfection because. He was also in a. Well, he was also in a. a yeah, weird. He was in. A, he was in a weird spot in his life. A lot of drugs. Yeah. A lot of cocaine. But Andy Muschietti took that. Took that source material, and created something beautiful. And again, it preyed upon actual fears. I think that we most some of us have as adults, but pretty much all of us can relate to having these fears as children. Right. You know, the leper, like a stranger approaching you with diseases and nar- just looking like a, a disgusting, disheveled human being. A clown in the middle of a field, um, an abusive dad, a, abusive parents. Yes, uh, the 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 picture in the dad's office for Stanley. You know, like what kid didn't have a painting or a picture or something, or something in the house know? that just irrationally scared you? And then to to know that that fear is not irrational; it is a perfectly rational fear. Just right. send it over the top. I because think those are the things that made that they're movie all grounded work. in reality. And you know, you take you know again Stephen King's material, and you have these great fears and things that you can pull from the book, and you know, taking away all of the fantastical stuff that Stephen King has created in his universe. Again, you know, you you talk about who didn't have something scary in their house. Who didn't have that creepy house they didn't want to walk by in their neighborhood? Oh, yeah, talking like about the Nebel house, fantastic, and the way that they made that look in the movie. I mean, the, Eddie is one of the characters I identified with a lot because I was a kid with asthma and other issues. <laughs> and granted, I didn't have a little watch, you know, going off telling me to take probably the obvious placebo pills, but 
I, I related to him in that sense that there were things that I was They're scared gazebos. of. Like that. <laughs> They're gazebos. But, you know, walking by the Niebolt house, um, you know, the, the scene with Georgie in the basement in the water where he's like, you'll float too, you'll float too. Nightmare fuel on every level. And, but there's also something that with the CG that's in the movie is done so well. The practical effects are done so well. The acting's done amazing. I think one of the things for the first movie that's so cool, you know, watching all of the behind the scenes stuff is that the kids didn't meet him for almost weeks. They didn't know what he looked like. Right. They didn't know until what his, they filmed his actual the Pennywise makeup scene. and outfit and everything were, were looked like right. until they, they shot those scenes. And I mean, that that alone, I feel like, added so much to the fear yep. that you actually get of these yep. kids whenever they started filming these scenes. And obviously, you can't do that again in the second movie. And there oh, are yeah. flashbacks in the second movie, and they're all the same kids, but they're all used to it. So that there is something that has taken away. Right, but you it, lose it from from the first film yeah. to the second film because there's the 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 the, the bloom is off the rose. Right, you've seen we already it. know what yeah. Pennywise looks like. We yeah. already know what the leper looks like. We already know what all of these kids' fears right. are, and you know, just kind of going back to that, you're like, all right, yeah, we get it. Like, and that's why it was hard for that sequel to succeed. Right, but one thing I want to before we move on, I want to talk about that that I think also makes the film just feel so different is that they not only get the horror aspects right but they get the the camaraderie between the kids perfect yeah it almost like it feels it reminds me of another stephen king adaptation stand by me like it feels very similar to the relationship and the rapport that those kids had with each other and like that movie stand by me is built upon the friendship between those kids it is all is obviously built upon the the Pennywise the clown and this entity that in that takes the form of Pennywise the clown but the other 50% of that story is the relationship between the losers club and right. and if they didn't get that part right I think the film would have failed but the fact that they got it right and the fact that they got the horror part right the two parts that needed to come together did come together in expert fashion well it's you know you you mentioned them coming together and you know it's the part when beverly's like you know this is what he wants he wanted he wants us separate you know we fought him and we hurt him when we were together and it's funny that you mentioned stand by me because i saw something the other day about a uh, favorite style of movie is the group of outcasts coming together and i i realize i do like a lot of those movies because stand by me is definitely one of those i grew up with um, but yeah, there's just something special about it. 2017, you and I watched it like nonstop. Once I, I got you to watch it for like a year. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, again, another movie that's absolutely quotable and Eddie is just one of my favorite characters in both movies. I, I know a lot Richie of people too. kind Richie of, was, oh, Richie I mean, was so on. good. Richie's ben Wolfhard deserves all the accolades for his performance and, of Richie. And I think, you know, they, they did a great job in the movie bringing in the tones that Stephen King has in the book about, again, the time period with the race and the discrimination and the homophobia um, and actually putting that tastefully into a movie because that's another shocker when you watch the miniseries is that there's a lot of uh, terms <laughs> that are uncomfortable to hear. And while they make sense for the time, they're still uncomfortable to hear 
where you don't get those as much in this movie. Definitely not the racial ones. Well, speaking of Stephen King adaptations and uh, stuff that makes you uncomfortable, my number two is The Shining. Oh, fantastic. It's my number two because it is just one of the most beautifully done movies, one of the most expertly written, one of the most expertly acted. Sure, there's a lot of conjecture that goes on about what happened behind the scenes and I think some of the lore and the legends and the rumors and all of that surrounding it probably helps the legacy but for me it's it's, it's literally all about from the start to the end of that film it it's perfection it is an absolute just class on how to make a tremendous horror movie you set the tone beautifully in the beginning and then from there it's just you're off to the races like the minute the Torrances get to the Overlook Hotel, which is probably like 15 minutes into the movie. Mm -hmm. By the time they hit the Overlook, boom, we're off to the races. We're in a full-blown horror movie, and it doesn't stop, and it's unrelenting, and it's just every minute you feel something more bizarre. You see something more bizarre, more jarring than you saw in the scene before. It's like dog suit seems like haunting to me. Right. It just it constantly one-ups itself. And, you know, you mentioned... You mentioned the dog suit scene. For me, it's the, the I mean, room 237. Oh, the is, bathtub is, oh, the bathtub is scene. I mean, iconic. It it's is, nothing's more terrifying than the cackling old it's lady. It's just the, the movie builds to this perfect climax. And that ending, like, just if you've, and, and it's one of those things, if you, if it's your first time watching it, there's no way you could possibly see where the story goes. You, it, it, I love movies that feel like they are a descent into madness. Uh, which obviously the main character Jack Torrance sure. is, you know, it's a descent into madness for him. Yeah. But I love when you feel like, as an audience member, you're on that ride too. You feel like you're going crazy. That's definitely one of those movies that I would love to watch for the first time again. Oh, one hundred percent agree. I mean, with that. yes, I understand. You know, uh, a lot of people talk about uh, how horrible Kubrick was to these people, and Especially Shelley Duvall. I th- especially. And I think, it oddly, those types of stories maybe made a lot more people watch the movie. Um, you know, it's definitely one of those big debate films. And I feel like a lot of people hate it just because they know everything that went on. It's hard to isolate those things. It I is. get it. I it mean, is we, hard to isolate. And we'll talk about that, too, in the future. Is just that there are movies that you and I can't watch or... based on circumstances surrounding it and the people involved with it but there is something about that movie that is just so beautifully artistic the music itself is fantastic the way it's shot it's uncomfortable it makes you it it makes you feel weird watching it it does it feels disorienting right it feels disorienting you know having knowing how things were intentionally shot to make things uncomfortable right and Kubrick wanted people to feel madness. Yeah, and you know, we've we've deep dived into that. You know, you you watched an hour long video a while ago. I wish we knew the YouTuber to to credit here um, about the 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 idea that it's actually mostly hallucinations 
and well, it, yeah, there's yeah the the I'll I'll, I'll touch upon it briefly here, yeah. but but it's the, the Wendy theory. The Wendy sta- theory. the Wendy theory states that uh, Wendy's the one who goes crazy, not Jack. Right. And this YouTuber, if you Google, if you Google the Wendy theory, if you search the Wendy theory on YouTube, you'll find this creator's video. It's perfect. But he does. He talks about how it's Wendy going crazy, not Jack. And he gives some great evidence to back that up. Yeah. But basically his evidence is the is like what you touched upon, how Kubrick intentionally shot things and moved things around on the set and changed things in the set, even within the same scene. Right. As we see in the scene where Wendy approaches Jack as he's writing. Yeah, this isn't just the the Starbucks cup in the Game of Thrones episode. This this is is... like intentionally, you know, moving things in the background. Right. There's a table, there's a chair, and these things are in the background and they move around, and you're not paying attention to it. Yet at the same time, your brain can't wrap its head around what it's seeing. And that's what I'm talking about with that whole descent into madness. This is probably the best example I can give of a film that captures the descent into madness yeah and 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 a character's uh just pure unadulterated uh psychotic break well even and and you know i'll only kind of i know we've been going on for a while here but the the thing that i that sticks out to me a lot is honestly some of the sounds in the movie not just like the score but you know when danny is riding his little tricycle and you get that sound on the hard tile, and then it goes to carpet, and then it goes tile to carpet, and like you're following behind him, and you just hear that. Yeah. Even just that builds a weird tension in itself. And of course, you, you get the peak when he goes around the corner of a certain hallway. I think everyone knows the scene of the the two little girls. Come play with us, Danny. Forever and ever, and that is just beautiful, beautifully yeah. done. You don't get more terrifying than that. No. Uh, so we have covered our five through two. Before we talk about our number ones, we want to go over some honorable, honorable men- mentions. Honorable mentions that we didn't get a touch upon, and we're not going to spend too much time on this because we're no. going to get to our number ones. Just mention. But for me, honorable mentions I mentioned earlier: Saw, House of a Thousand Corpses, definitely some uh, some honorable mentions for me. Hellraiser. Oh, I wanted to put Hellraiser it on this list, really but great. I had to bump it for things like Candyman. Just We'll talk about Hellraiser plenty. Uh, I actually gave an honorable mention for Alice, Sweet Alice. I think it's a great 70s horror movie that I think everybody should check out. But one one thing that's noticeably absent from my list is uh, John Carpenter. And he's one of the most iconic filmmakers of all time. I love stuff like Halloween, The Thing, and then The Mouth of Madness. I just couldn't pick. I, I I guess I just couldn't decide on one over the other. So I just left him off the list entirely. But... I gotta show, I gotta give big ups to John Carpenter. He's the godfather of horror. It's hard not to talk about him when you're talking horror movies. I don't want anybody to I don't want to lose street cred here with anybody <laughs> and not talk about John Carpenter. But yeah, I, uh, several honorable mentions for his just his entire career. So I mean, those are a few always, of the ones. Always something we can talk about right. another time too. But mm-hmm. those are those are some of the honorable mentions. Uh, Natalie, go ahead and throw out some of your honorable mentions. So I just wrote down three kind of real quick ones. Um, Aliens. I know a lot of people are like, well, that's sci-fi action. But it, to me, it is still horror because it comes from Alien. You know, if if I'm watching a movie and the coolest thing about Aliens is that no one in the scene knew what was going to happen with the chestburster in Alien, you know? But that is horror. 
and yes, you don't get as much of that in this, you know, in aliens, but you still get scary xenomorphs killing people. And well, so, I defy anybody to sit there and have a xenomorph approach them and not be terrified. So right. it's still scary. And the reason I say aliens instead of alien is simply because of Vasquez. I will not be elaborating. Second movie in my honorable mentions, the queer icon Babadook. <laughs> yes, Babadook. The, everybody, everybody's familiar with the LGBTQIA plus icon. That is the Babadook. Absolutely. But that movie, as someone um, you know, who deals with depression, watching that movie blew me away. And obviously, it's a very different situation you know, than what I, I've ever had. But the tones in that movie, the noise that he makes, the book, everything about it's beautiful. I understand a lot of people hate the kid, and we all kind of love to hate the kid. And I think that's just what makes the movie great. Um, My third one, which almost made it, it almost bumped off Saul, I'm not going to lie, is a beautiful movie about sisters called Ginger Snaps. Who doesn't love Ginger Snaps? Ginger Snaps is probably my favorite werewolf movie of all time. If oh. we ever want to, we ever want to go that route. We definitely will. Um, but it's uh, awesome, and you know, it's the second thing that has my girl, um, Catherine Isabel. Catherine Isabel oh, here. Yeah. Um, She's got you so tongue-tied you couldn't even remember her name. <laughs> exactly. But you remember you remember Catherine Isabel. I, nobody I nobody forgets Catherine, Catherine Isabel. Isabel. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ginger Snaps is just a phenomenal movie. If you're a woman, you need to watch it. I don't care if you don't like horror and you don't like werewolves. You just need to see the movie. Um, it's got this great bond of sisters. And it you know, talks about growing up and going through changes. And obviously that goes into werewolf changes and lady changes all at the same time. And it's just such a brilliant movie. And that werewolf at the end is absolutely perfect terrific terrific wolves yes so yeah we've took covered our honorable mentions now time to get into our favorite horror movies of all time so natalie uh without further ado what is your favorite horror movie of all time my favorite movie horror movie of all time which has seemed to get a lot more popular in the last five to ten years i feel like maybe just five is trick-or-treat it blew me away when I saw it. I remember even seeing comic books for it. Who can't love little Sam, the spirit of Halloween, running around, just wanting candy and see jack-o'-lanterns lit and just the way that you get all of these different stories that come together at the end. And then when you watch it again, you notice other things from the other characters that you didn't even notice. Like, you start that movie, you don't notice who's in the car in the beginning of that movie until you watch it a second time. Watching it a second time is almost required yeah. after you finish it because you do start to see how the stories interweave with one another. And it's interesting to me that your number one is an anthology film, first off, because I don't really think of it as an anthology film because to me an no. anthology film is like separate stories. Would be Whereas like Tales these... of Halloween, you know, the, right. the movie we watch. It has a bunch of different little horror shorts. Right. But you look at look at the classics like Tales from the Crypt and Creep Show, and Twilight Zone and all that. They're these mm-hmm. like these broken, fragmented stories 
that, you know, there's this overarching narrative, but ultimately they're not related. Right. But then we watch Trick or Treat and, you know, like I said, I don't think of it as an anthology film, but it really is because it does tell all these different stories, but it does something that the others don't do in the sense that it weaves them together. together it is yeah. one cohesive narrative. Yeah. And that's probably why I don't think of it as an anthology film, but it is, honestly, it's one of the best anthology films that I've ever seen. And then just you factor in, just the 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 different ways it's able to take different aspects of Halloween and even touch upon its roots of Samhain and just the way it's able to incorporate so many different things yet it never loses sight of the main message right and the main narrative don't and the main the hook rules. don't break the rules it's simple and if you do uh, little Sam is going to uh, unalive you with a lollipop <laughs> or a chocolate bar or the help of werewolves. Like you don't know. The film gives so many incredible performances. Like you've got Leslie Bibb, one of my favorite actresses, Brian Cox, Dylan Baker. Uh, it, it, it really takes these gifted performers, puts them in an environment. Unlike what we've seen, like I couldn't tell you, and more sinister performance from Dylan Baker. It is. Oh yeah. He is just absolutely bonkers in that movie. <laughs> then you've got Anna Paquin uh, with her group, and Which I can't she even. Can I can't be even debatable, go into details. I can't you know, even go into on a detail. lot of her roles, but she does. She does really, oh, really good in this one. It's like like Michael Doherty deserves all the credit in the world because he he is he got my the best favorite. performance yes. out of every single actor in this movie. And I mean, you look at it on paper, you're like, okay, Dylan Baker, Brian Cox, Grimmy, the heavy hitters. But he really does. Leslie Bibb, Anna Paquin, uh, the girls in the group with Anna Paquin and well, her even story. Even the little kid. The little like, kids. I don't know who the oh, little kid the little is. Kids. Well, all yeah, the all the kids. All the kids, all the kids are kids. terrific in that movie. Like Rhonda. Rhonda's you know, the best. Of, what Rhonda is like, I'm Team Rhonda. Team all Rhonda way. all the way. Trigger tree. I'd give her all of my pumpkins, oh, yeah. all of my candy, everything. She's just the coolest character. And. You know, she follows the rules a little bit, right? So uh, she follows the rules. Like you know, that's like I, we said, it goes back to the overarching narrative and the overarching message is follow, follow the, rules. the rules. That's it. It's a simple simple premise. Don't yet. blow out your jack o' lantern. Always check your candy. You yeah. know, all of these things. I, and and that's something like I think because of how much I love Halloween is why I love this movie. Because obviously, some of the other movies I've talked about or we've talked about like, you know, house of a thousand corpses is a Halloween movie. Of course, you know, Halloween is a Halloween movie, yeah. but there's something about the whole vibe of trick or treat starting from the beginning. You got the street full of kids, all the jack-o'-lanterns on the, the parade. sidewalk. I love the parade. The parade, all the houses, all of the and decorations. you go back and you watch that parade scene, it's so <sighs> obviously it's so obviously low budget when you watch it because it's just a bunch of extras that Michael Doherty paid. Like you could tell they got paid like 15 bucks in the just Subway sandwich. Just took some backlot costumes just, oh, yeah. and threw them on there and be like, totally here, just like dance scene. to this music. And I love Here's it. a fake news reporter and like one dude on stilts. So but good. There's, there's something about that. Like I... I love movies like that. Like I want to be in a town that lives Halloween and that town does constantly. And, you know, you see little Sam 
and you're like, I don't know what the hell this is. Yeah, yeah. Is, What's yeah, this what is little th- kid in an orange burlap right. onesie? And when you kind of, and we really at the end of the movie, we 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 get a couple answers, but ultimately we really. Don't. I mean, just a little. It's, just a little. It's, I think just you get enough. more from the just comic enough. books, honestly, for what he truly is. I think and the, the short fir- film and the short it, yeah, films, yeah, I think yeah. The, yeah, the short film that inspired the full length movie, yeah. I think was was tremendous too. Yeah, but I mean, he's just so cute. And terrifying. He's very cute. And yeah, as as we saw, we went to uh, Spirit Halloween oh, today, man. and uh, uh, I mean Spirit Halloween. If you haven't been, it's uh, majority of it now is just trick or treat and Sam merchandise. Right. So uh, if you don't know Sam, you probably do know Sam. You just may not know him by name. You right. may not know what movie he's from. But at little this point, orange he has onesie, become... round burlap sack head. Usually a lollipop or a trick or treat bag, in but his he's hand. become a horror icon. He's, he he's has. A, if and I mean if things continue on this trajectory, he's probably going to be up there with Freddy <laughs> and Michael and he's Jason. A, he's like, a heavy hitter. He I mean, I feel like hitter. once and you have your one movie though, only one movie. He's and only I, got one movie. And I feel like once you have a statue um, in a Halloween store that holds your Halloween candy to put on a porch, you've officially made it Absolutely, as an icon. Yeah, yeah. Can't, and can't argue with that. I mean that That's section grows. <laughs> section grows every year and i mean it used to be you would have to i'd have to fight tooth and nail to get anything trick-or-treat merchandise and now it's everywhere we had to fight tooth and nail to get the movie released like remember it was right it was one of those things that was stuck in developmental hell for it was ever and it was even once it was filmed it was like it was there were like it was gonna go to theaters then it didn't then it was gonna go to dvd yeah then it took forever for it to go to dvd yeah and it's like you know I mean, I feel like I I remember reading the comics standing back when I was a a comic bookstore nerd, um, and I'd I'd be there all the time, not for traditional hero comics. I always loved the spooky stuff. And um, I saw that first trick-or-treat comic, and I was like, this is really cool, and picked it up and read it. and was like, I like this. And there's ads in it about the movie. And, you know, once we finally got it, and again, you know, I just... (laughs) I talk about the vibes of the movie, but it just doesn't stop. No matter where, where it's the the costume store is packed. You know, it's Halloween. Why is the Halloween costume store packed? Don't all these people have costumes already? But it's the fact that it's packed because everyone loves Halloween. Yeah. And yeah. I love Halloween. Yeah. And all it, the trick-or-treaters dressed up in different cool outfits that they've either bought or they've made. It's almost like the enthusiasm that normal people have towards Halloween is conveyed 100% through that film. Yeah. yeah. Agree. Yeah. I agree. All right. So we've heard Natalie's number one. My number one favorite horror movie of all time. It, to me, it doesn't get any better than 1960s Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And I could talk about this movie for days. Uh, we'll probably do a whole episode on the Psycho franchise. Yeah, I'll just uh, we've got to, I'll, we've got to I'll brush be quiet up on the and Psycho. let you talk for an hour That's about right. Psycho. <laughs> That's all right, we've got to brush up on the Psycho franchise, but I can tell you we will do a whole episode about Psycho franchise. But just focusing right now on the the masterpiece that is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and Alfred Hitchcock is another one like we were talking about with Kubrick, where he doesn't have the best reputation as a director. Kind of used some less than savory tactics to get performances out of his actors. You know, that, that all can be debated, but what can't be debated is what the final product was with Psycho. And what it was was nothing short of, to me, the perfect horror movie, the most perfect horror movie ever made. You have the stunning misdirection of, you know, you think this movie is going to be about Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane, 
and now she steals money from her boss. But that was our one, you know, that was one of the times we got to see Hitchcock's iconic use of the MacGuffin. And mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know what the MacGuffin is, the MacGuffin is literally a plot device that starts the story, but ultimately in the end we realize has no bearing on the consequences of the ending of the movie, which I think is very realistic because how many times in life have we encountered something like this is going to have a profound effect on me? And really, at the yeah. end of the day, it meant nothing to us. It doesn't. You, you just forget about right. it. Right. It's frivolous. And, and I mean, yeah. definitely, you know, if we were talking just like not to personally us, but the best movies, I honestly think and agree here that Psycho to me is the greatest horror movie of all time. Not personally, like, you know, obviously my choices, but just the way it's done, I just don't think it can be beat. I think it is just on a whole scale of critically acclaimed movies, whatever, what have you, it's the best movie. It really, it, it, yeah, and, and I, I will I'll sit here and tell you, not only is it the best horror film ever made, to me it's the best movie ever made. It's and, beautiful. And I, I mean, I yeah. consider and point, I could t- again, I, I joke about it, but I could talk all day about what the film does right and the fact that it does nothing wrong. But from the acting, the directing, the writing, the set design, you know, the Bates house has become iconic. But I, and, and I don't just say this to sound pretentious, but I try to go in every time I've seen the movie. And I've seen the movie more times than I can count, probably over 100 times at this point. No exaggeration. But I try to go in with a fresh pair of eyes every time just to see, like, am I just watching this with rose-colored glasses? Or do I really think this is the greatest film? And every time I watch it and I try to approach it with a fresh perspective, I try to leave all the iconic status of everybody behind. And yet I'm still captivated as just as much as it was the first time I watched it. I agree. And part of that is Hitchcock. Part of that is Janet Lee's just awe-inspiring performance. But I think really... What does it for me, and, and the, the key to everything, is Anthony Perkins' performance as Norman Bates. Yeah, 100%. All due respect to you know Vince Vaughn. I think a lot of people crap on the remake unnecessarily. I think it was okay. Yes, it was just shot-for-shot shot remake. Yes, it was probably unnecessary in the end, but it was fine for what it was, and I think it gets a lot of undeserved hate. But no disrespect to Vince Vaughn. No disrespect to Freddie Highmore or anybody oh, who's Freddie Highmore Norman Bates. was a great modern day Norman Bates. He was, Bates. but to me, the show is a little be, wild. There but... will be nobody that can compete or beat Anthony Perkins in his performance as Norman yeah. Bates. It is not only is like I said, it's the best movie of all time, but that might be the best performance of any actor. Like he showed tremendous range there: humor, sadness, sarcasm, wit, uh, d- desire. Uh, malice. I mean, crazed and insanity. Then yeah, then he Just loses the his mind. Full you know? range of performance. You, you know, yes, of course, you can point to, you know, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. You can point to. Just literally, you can Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. You know, you can point to all these iconic performances that define people's careers. Heath Ledger is the Joker, but to me, to me, nobody, nobody, nobody beats Anthony Perkins nobody. as. Norman Bates. And the funny thing about it, too, is I don't know if a lot of people know this. I imagine most people do. But for those of you who don't, it is an adaptation of a novel by an author named Robert Block, who did a lot of crime and mystery novels. But Psycho was what Hitchcock you know, wanted to develop it and turn it into a film. And he did. One thing he changed, though, was the way Norman Bates actually looks. Norman Bates looks nothing like Anthony Perkins does. Norman Bates actually looks like 
I hate to bring this movie up, but he actually like the when I read the book, I picture the guy from Human Centipede too. I think everybody's got like that's that's how Norman Bates is described. He's he's kind of fat. He's awkward. He's 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 not charming. He's not handsome. He's not coordinated. He is just kind of this fat, ugly, nasty little guy. And but yet Hitchcock (laughs) knew that wasn't going to work, and he picked Anthony Perkins. And the even though he changed everything about the antagonist there, he made the most iconic villain in all of film history. He made right. Norman Bates. I mean, he's he's literally. I mean, even to this day, there are people who know like the noise. You know, like I do it at oh, work. Oh, everybody sometimes. does like that. Like the wait, 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 wait. Everybody does that. The like, Bernard Herrmann right. score is another piece that just made oh, that the movie music's work. Music stunning and. The thing is, too, it's, you know, it's funny you're talking about how he is in the books and, you know, not that we're a a fat shaming household because I'm a little fatty myself, but it's, there is something to taking the, the typical idea of kind of a creep and you, you know, you're kind of talking about the imagery and I think of uh, even, you know, um, other horror movies where there's characters that I feel like there's these kind of skeezy guys, you know, that just are more like what he is in the book. And, you know, you have Perkins, who, to me, is so handsome. Like, I would, if I lived in the time that he was alive, I would have immediately fainted at his feet to see him. Well, and Because that's one he's reason... just such a charismatic, and I, I don't, obviously, I don't know a lot about him personally, but as Norman Bates... We know about his son. Right, we, <laughs> we know about his son, yeah. Um, but... As Norman Bates, there's just so, something so phenomenal about him. Just even when he's just standing there with a the little bag of candy eating. Oh, candy. I love it. But and that's just, that's why that's one of the reasons why Hitchcock picked Anthony Perkins though was he wanted to instead of making it somebody who you would look at and be like, oh, that guy's a creep, you stay away from him. He wanted somebody handsome. He wanted somebody charismatic. He wanted somebody with personality that would draw you in because ultimately honestly, that's scary. Right. That is. And that let's not, you know, let's not forget that, you know, uh, what was to come with Ted Bundy. I mean, it's like, you know, right. it's almost like Hitchcock in a way predicted Ted Bundy because that's what Anthony, I mean, you look at Anthony Perkins and Ted Bundy, the yeah. real Ted Bundy side by side. Well, and just like, watching the Bundy it, tapes on, uh, on Netflix and the, yeah. the, the women, uh, the old interviews that would be like, talking about how handsome he was right. and even the people who were like oh my god ted bundy and it's like what right yeah <laughs> but how, it's like you know how are you how are you sucked into this well yeah. it's easy to see when you look at somebody like anthony perkins who can portray that charisma and that that energy that draws people in you know it's like yeah. i'm not saying it i'm not saying it makes sense why people go after serial killers that's one of the things that i don't think any of us will ever understand right but when you watch a performance like what anthony perkins brought to norman bates you realize that, and again, this is one of the reasons Hitchcock wanted Anthony Perkins to play Norman Bates, was that's that's what you have to look out for. You have to look for the wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And that's what Norman Bates is. He's the wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, in a way, we it's almost, upon, we you know, it's a little scary. Whole, yeah. it's, it's, it makes it a little scarier, you know, thinking about stopping at a hotel and you've got this handsome guy at the desk and you're like, yeah. oh, should I trust the handsome guy or should right. I not? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, just everything he does, like, and I, I know obviously the, the setting, the period of the movie is very different because... Yeah. I'm sure if I stopped at like the Super 8 and he was like, I'm about to make sandwiches and milk, you want to join me in the parlor? I'd be like, 
absolutely not. It's 2022. Who are you? Hard pass. A hard pass. But there's still a lot of those little hotels on the side of the road that, you know, people might kind of be like that. There are a little bit more friendly. And, you know, I just don't trust anyone no matter what they look oh, like. Yeah. Um, and horror movies have kind of instilled that in me from a young age to not trust anybody. But there is something about Psycho that is, you know, so much more realistic because it is just a psychopath. And, you know, you have all these creepy elements. Like when he takes the picture down and he looks through into her room. And See, you already that, know that what he's going to do. That part is way worse than the book, by the way. Sure. And, uh, you know, they've kind of, uh, I think the show, uh, Bates Motel, kind of took it, it a little bit that. more. It touched you know? upon that a little bit. Um, but I think the remake actually. It's been a while since I've seen the remake, but I think the remake was even harder than yeah. the original did. But I mean, you know, again, you look at when the movie was made and what was more appropriate to show or not to show yeah. and things that were a lot more scandalous now. And yeah. But there's something to that, you know, even with movies that are made now that kind of have right. that type of restraint almost to what Psycho was. Right. That makes them so beautiful. Well, and, and it's one of the first films to have not just the greatest twist ending of all time, but it has Indeed. two twists when you think about it. Yeah, Because, exactly. you know, you lose your protagonist, like... Early. Like, yeah. the, after the first act. The first act yeah. ends with the lady who we thought the movie was going to be about. She dies. Right. You know, spoiler alert. MacGuffin. Oh, but, well, uh, I think, you know, a couple of decades were yeah, past spoiler it's, it's alerts. Been, it's been over 60 years, guys. Watch <laughs> the movie or get off the pot. Right. Um, and then you have the ending. So we have, like, all these things we're talking about with Norman Bates. We haven't even talked about the fact that he is just psychotic we're talking about all these different elements and mm-hmm. he's he's a psych he's he's literally a psycho who you know Roll he, credits. He, he kills his mother and becomes his mother it's it's just unbelievable yeah. like like even 60 years later it's unbelievable it is that's i mean uh top movie of movies that i wish that i could watch for the first time again which I actually watched that in summer school my junior year when my yeah. English teacher decided <laughs> um, that we were going to learn about Alfred Hitchcock for the summer. And every Friday of summer school, we watched a Hitchcock movie. And first week was The Birds, which I'd seen. And then the second movie was Psycho, which I'd never seen. So I didn't see the movie until I was like 17. And I was late teens I was when abs- I saw it too. So I I, was yeah, I get it. Blown away. And I mean, I remember looking at, you know, kids in my class and, you know, they're kind of look like, like oh, it's just an old black and white movie. Oh, yeah, but then, boring black and white movie. Then as it kind of keeps going on, everyone's attention's watching and watching and watching and more and more it and more. It captivates and more. everybody. And you get that twist of the mom in the basement, you know, in the cellar. Oh gosh. Dead. You know, that just scene when when she when 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 Lila turns around the chair and you, and you see, see that skeleton face. corpse there just like uh. but you see that and you're like oh damn yeah. and then she turns around and there's norman in his mom's clothing and you're like double damn right like <laughs> it's phenomenal yeah that movie just the way it's shot everything starts to finish every single second every single frame is pure perfection pure perfection I would almost put it at number one for me, but I understand it means a lot more to you, and it means a lot to me as well. Um, it's another one of our comfort movies, obviously, that we uh, like to just put on and watch and have on in the background and listen to and, and quote all the time and honestly talk along with the movie. Um, but, yeah, I think that's a solid, solid choice for number one. Thank you. Well, 
folks, that was episode one. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. I promise they won't probably always be quite as long. Probably um, not. But, but this is our introduction. To, we wanted yeah. you to really understand kind of a little bit more about us and where we come from and what we like. And obviously, it's we've got a lot to talk about. And we want to hear from you guys, too. So, Yeah. And uh, if you have anything that you want us to elaborate on, please let us know. Please reach out to us. This was a blast. We're going to do it again. We're going to keep bringing you more episodes. And... We look forward to the future, uh, but I think uh, we've been looking for uh, a way to close the show. You keep asking me about a way to close the show, and I've got a way to do it, so stick with me here. Okay. okay. So everybody, remember, be careful. There are a lot of weirdos out there. We are the weirdos, mister. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every weekend. Follow us on TikTok at Pod and send emails to HorrorzoidPod at gmail.com with your thoughts, questions, and stories for us to read on a future episode. To all our Zoids out there, stay scary.